Today we're going to conclude our four-week study on the subject of homosexuality and a biblical response to it. As I said at the outset of this study, it deals with far more than the sexual conduct of less than 4% of our population. It really affects our position on biblical authority and biblical interpretation. It has much to say to us about prevailing modern idolatries and the decline of culture. As we saw last week, it is ultimately a study about the character and the goodness of God and how believers can deal with temptation. And as we're going to see in this concluding message, it's a study about how we can witness effectively, not just to those who are caught up in a gay lifestyle, but to those who endorse that lifestyle and to our increasingly secularized culture. As we launch into this fourth and final study, I'm going to read the same text that I've read each week. By now, you should have it memorized. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Say it together with me. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That's a verse about being oriented to Jesus, and that's been the title for this series, and today we're going to conclude it with part four. But first, let's look to the Holy Spirit together. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me so that the words of my mouth and the meditations and responses of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. And as we study God's Word together this morning, may the Lord be with you. Years ago, I heard someone suggest this definition for Christian witness. They said, Christian witness is simply one beggar telling another beggar where he or she found bread. One beggar telling another beggar where he or she found bread. I like that definition. It reminds us that if we know Jesus, we have something to share. If Christ dwells within you, you have something to share that our broken world desperately needs. And it also reminds us that we cannot transform other people. We can't fill the voids in their heart, but we can faithfully point them to the one who can fill that void. We can witness to them. And today as we talk about witnessing to the gay community but to the larger culture, I want to focus on some principles that should shape our witness and some attitudes that ought to undergird our witness. Principles and attitudes that we will need to embrace corporately as a local congregation and that each of us needs to embrace individually as we share Christ in our sphere of influence. The appropriate witness for pointing homosexual men and women towards Jesus, for pointing all people towards Jesus. And I'd like to begin with one of the most basic principles of witness to homosexuals. Appropriate witness points homosexual people to Jesus, not to heterosexuality. To Jesus, not heterosexuality. 
Now, if you've heard my earlier messages, you'll know that I'm not suggesting that once you come to Jesus, you can continue in homosexual conduct. We've made it very clear that that's something that God forbids. What I'm saying is that people who are tempted in the area of homosexuality, whose impulses are in that direction, cannot change themselves any more than people who battle with heterosexual lust can change themselves. The only way they are ever going to change is if they come to Jesus and he begins his powerful work within their hearts. Once we can introduce them to Jesus, he'll take over from there because he's got a lot of experience in this transformation business. And he'll begin to convict them of sin and of righteousness. And he'll begin to point out to them the things that are contrary to his will and his intent for them. And he will give them the power as we saw last week, to resist temptation, to find that way of escape, and to endure. So our witness must never point them towards heterosexuality. It must always point them towards Jesus. He is the only enduring antidote for those who are suffering from counterfeit sexual orientation. Now, the second thing I want to point out is an appropriate attitude. Appropriate witness to gays and to anyone calls for love and humility. Say those three words, love and humility. Like their gay predecessors in ancient Corinth, there are many followers of Jesus today who can testify that their lives are no longer shaped by their impulses or their temptations, their lives are shaped by their beliefs and by their relationship with Jesus. But if you'll talk to those people, you'll find that while they give the great glory to God, many of them also attribute the change in their life to a faithful friend or faithful friends who shared God's uncompromised truth with them in untiring compassion. Friends who loved them as they were while modeling and sharing the heart of the Creator who didn't want them to remain that way. As one former practitioner of homosexuality put it, quote, I knew where my friend stood, and I knew he didn't agree with me, but he still showed me the love of Jesus, and we are drawn to that. We're drawn to that. In light of this, I'd like to suggest this week that the popular dictum we often hear in regards to witnessing to homosexuals has not served us very well. The dictum is a slight reworking of the words of Augustine, and today we've translated those words this way, love the sinner hate the sin. How often do you hear that? Love the sinner, hate the sin. Again, I don't think that dictum serves us well. You see, words shape our perceptions. Our perceptions of God, our perceptions of other people, our perceptions of ourselves, our perceptions of life. And if we repeat those words, I'm afraid they cultivate the perception that sin is essentially something that lies outside of us, that it lies in others, it lies in them. 
when we should all recognize that sin is something that lies very close to us all. And we all have to contend with the temptations of this world and the power of sin. And if we fail to appreciate that, then our assertions about homosexuality, our witness to homosexuals, will sound rather convenient. And by that I mean it'll sound like we're really tough on the sins that we don't struggle with while we turn a blind eye to the ones that we do struggle with. It'll sound as if we are specialists in the sins of others rather than our own sins. If I could take the words of Jesus and rework them, it'll sound to the, hetero, or to the homosexual community as if the logs in our heterosexual eyes only allow us to see the splinters in their homosexual eyes. I'd like to suggest an alternative dictum one that is based on Jesus' succinct summary of righteousness. I'd like to suggest love God, hate your own sin, and love sinners. Love God, hate your own sin, and then love sinners. Now let's unpack that. We know that love God is the beginning and the end of the commandments. Jesus said that. And if you love God, you will reserve your strongest hatred for the sin that erodes and corrodes your relationship with God. And the sin that corrodes your relationship with God is, drumroll, your own sin. The sins of others cannot corrode my relationship with God. If everyone else in the world around me was sinning against God, that would not corrode my relationship with God. The only sins that affect my relationship with God are my own. Now, once we discover that obedience to God in all areas releases a new sense of intimacy with God, a new sensitivity for others, a new discernment of the Holy Spirit, a new sense of power and of liberty. Once we discover that through our own obedience, we'll want to share that really abundant life with other people. Why? Because to love God is to love what God loves. And God loves the world. Let me put it somewhat differently. You can't love sinners if you don't first love God. If you can't love God in all of his holiness, in all of his majesty, in all of his perfection, how are you going to love a sinner? And if you love God, you will love sinners because God cares about sinners. Then your witness will be offered in love and humility. And if your gay friend or gay acquaintance doesn't respond right away, you'll understand that because you'll remember that when God speaks to you about sin, you usually don't respond right away. How many of us respond the very first time God says something to us about our own sin? Usually requires at least a second time, or a tenth time, or a hundredth time. Anybody out there on a thousand? I've taken a thousand, thousand once, thousand twice. Hey. 
So if it takes God time to break through to us about our own sin when we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we understand that, then we'll be humble and patient and loving and gracious. When our friends don't hear us the first time, don't respond the second time, don't applaud the third time. Earlier in this series, I said that an accurate interpretation of God's word concerning homosexuality or any other topic demands that we be aware of the context. Well, the same is true of witnessing. Appropriate witness to homosexual people requires awareness of our context, of our cultural setting, and our audience. God's word never changes, but our audience often changes. And we need to adapt our witness to the audience that is before us. Our audience should inform our witness. So let me suggest what I'm talking about in a series of statements. When speaking to cultural elitists and gay activists who despise us and our beliefs, be bold and unapologetic. When you're defending God's truth to antagonists of that truth, never be apologetic because that makes it look like you're not very sure that God's word really does say that. And if you're not sure, why should they be sure? You have to be absolutely sure that you are standing on biblical ground, and if you are on biblical ground, you never, never, never apologize for that. Be bold and unapologetic. When you're speaking to strugglers who resist same-sex attraction. Be loving, patient, and sympathetic. Able to say things like, well, I don't struggle with that, but I have my own struggles. And here's what I've found has been helpful to me. But God is good, and God is faithful, and He will complete the work that He started in you. When you're speaking to those who have been wounded by believers, and a number of gay men and women have been wounded by Christians. Insensitive Christians, misguided Christians, self-righteous Christians. God's Gestapo, they're out there. When you're speaking to those wounded by believers, be apologetic and humble. You say apologetic, well, what if I didn't do anything? Well, the Bible says that we are a part of God's royal priesthood. Priests represent people to God and God to people. And throughout Scripture, you often see those that God called to be priests standing before God on behalf of the people, identifying with the people, and asking for God's forgiveness for the sins of the people. But they usually said something like this, Oh God, forgive us for our sins. And so if you come across a gay person that's been treated badly by a Christian. Maybe the only Christian witness they ever encountered was somebody with a God hates fags sign. It might be appropriate and very healing for you to say, I am so sad that that happened. And on behalf of the body of Christ, I want to apologize to you because that's not the way God's people should conduct themselves. When speaking to weak Christians, and we've got a lot of them, 
They're shaped more by culture than by Scripture. When speaking to weak Christians who compromise truth to gain the approval of society or approval of their friends, be persuasive and be persistent. Remind them that they're not really serving their friend well by compromising the Word of God. When speaking to compromised believers who redefine God's truth, be serious and uncompromising. Friend, I believe you are leading people astray. I believe you are leading people away from God's truth. And that's a serious thing. And I plead with you to reconsider your ways. When you're speaking to homosexuals who live contrary to Scripture, be respectful, loving, but straightforward. Don't mince words. And finally, when you're speaking to believers who display hatred or fear or self-righteousness, be direct in loving rebuke. My brother, my sister, that's not the way God would have us witness. That attitude is not of the Holy Spirit. The fact that we might have to speak to believers reminds us that sometimes witness must occur within the church before it can occur in the world. Judgment often has to begin with the household of God before the household of God can be effective in witness in the world. And one of the reasons for that is this. Appropriate witness requires both demonstration and proclamation. A compelling model as well as a convicting and convincing message. I believe one of the reasons why the gay rights movement has emerged and has grown so rapidly is that heterosexual marriage has lost much of its attractiveness and much of its moral authority so that many of our contemporaries find it hard to believe that God's original design and intent is indeed good. Many gay men and women point to the ugliness seen in far too many marriages. And they point to the abuse experienced in far too many so-called traditional families. And their conclusion is, we need an alternative to that which is broken. So it's no wonder, in light of all that they see, that some of them would seek alternative models, that some of them would suggest alternative models. But to them, first of all, I would say two things. First of all, gay marriage isn't a solution for domestic breakdown. It's just a further step down the same road. If heterosexual marriages are floundering, it's because of sin. To redefine marriage in a way that God's word prohibits just adds one more sin. I remember my parents often said to me growing up something that many of you probably heard from your folks, two wrongs don't make a right. Redefining marriage is not the answer for marriages that are crumbling. And one of the little dirty secrets of gay activists is that in those places where gay marriage has been legalized, the divorce rate 
among gay partners and the abuse that takes place, violent physical abuse between gay partners is rapid and growing. You don't solve sin issues by just creating new ways to sin. The second thing I would say to them is that the answer for marital failure isn't a redefinition of God's intent, but a return to it. To those who would say, we've tried the biblical pattern of marriage and found it wanting, I would suggest, no, the biblical pattern for marriage has been largely untried. Because when you follow the Creator's script, when husbands understand that their calling is to be the chief servant in the household, responsible before God for the flourishing of their wives and children, that they're to love their wives as Christ loved the church. When wives understand that they're to pray their husband into better servant leadership for the blessing of themselves and their children. When husbands and wives pray together and allow the Holy Spirit to referee when they're having that intense fellowship that we're all familiar with. Christian marriage is a wonderful, enriching, fulfilling, satisfying, and abundant thing. I'd like to suggest to us, the church, that the same cultural idolatries, specifically the idolatry of sexuality and the idolatry of personal autonomy, where man becomes the measure of all things, those two prevailing idolatries that have led to increased homosexuality are also responsible for increased breakdown of heterosexual marriages and for the increasing cohabitation without marriage that we are seeing among men and women who profess to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of those things are increasing because Christians are allowing themselves to be shaped more by the culture and the idolatries of the culture than by the Word of God. The same worship disorder that has brought increased homosexuality has brought increased divorce and increased cohabitation. None of them aligning with God's will. If we want to model God's good news to the gay community, our marriages, our families must demonstrate vividly the goodness of God's family structure and the goodness of God's sexual norms. Our marriages, our families must be attractive, life-affirming, life-enriching for husbands and wives and children. And the marriage covenant must be seen as sacred. And we must return to the unchanged truth that apart from that covenant, sexual intimacy is fornication and a sin against a holy God. And if you lay a foundation for your marriage in sin, at some point there'll come the moment when you have to pay the piper. We get a lot of pushback when couples come to us to get married, and if they're cohabiting, we tell them they need to separate. What do you mean? Are you kidding me? Scripture is clear. 
Sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage. Living together is not the same as being married. If you doubt me, if you want to split, do you need a divorce? No. Why? Because you were never married. So it was fornication. And when you begin in sin, you position yourself for later disappointment. The divorce rate among those who cohabit before they married is almost double that of the rest of the population. I wonder why. Because if you start wrong, you're going to end up wrong. If you just want somebody to do a ceremony, go to Vegas. If you want somebody who cares enough about you to position you for God's blessing in the future, go to the church. But if you go to the church, expect the church to hold the standard of God's word and not the standard of culture. But pastor, we've got to get married in a year. If you can't control yourself for the next year, what makes you think that a ceremony will help you control yourself for the years that follow? Unfaithfulness among those who cohabit skyrockets because you've already set a pattern of ignoring the Word of God. And the Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out. Covenant must be seen as sacred. Celibacy as well. In short, if we don't personify holy relationships and sexuality, our words about them will not be persuasive. They won't be persuasive. Another aspect of appropriate attitude, appropriate witness listens before it instructs. Everybody has a story to tell. And as we hear their stories, it helps us understand the choices that they've made. And if we have no interest in hearing their stories, it will feel to them like all we really care about is seeing them commit to our worldview and our belief system. We need to listen. And listening always helps you to see the person you're witnessing to as a person, not as a homosexual, not as a criminal, not as a drug dealer, not as a prostitute, not as an alcoholic, but as a person created in the image of God just like you. Finally, I think we all feel a lot of pressure Undue pressure, I would suggest, where witnessing is concerned. And I want to remind you that effective witnessing isn't leading someone to Jesus. It's helping them take their next step towards Jesus. That person that you're witnessing to, God may be using 50 other believers <laughs> to touch their life as well. Your calling may be to water somebody else to remove some weeds that threaten the seed. Maybe your calling is to be the one who plants that seed. Maybe your calling is to nurture that developing seed. We don't all get to be there the moment of harvest when a person 
responds to the grace of God and says, yes, I need Jesus. It's great to be there in that moment. But if you're there in that moment, don't think that was all you're doing. The Holy Spirit is the one who draws, and he probably used a lot of believers you don't even know. So whatever role God has for you in that elongated process, feel that role, but don't feel the need to close the deal or close the sale. Because when you do that, then you try to force things unnaturally. You try to force a premature birth. It's like a farmer who plants a seed, and two months later, he digs it up to see if it's growing. Or he grabs hold of the seed and he squeezes it to try to get the plant to come out. Do your part. Let the Holy Spirit orchestrate the whole process. If you're there at the final moment, rejoice. But if you're not, thank God that he used you in the process. Remember, even if you have the right attitude, at times as you witness, you're going to be met with hostility, perhaps hatred and mockery. But I'd remind you, sometimes we have to go into the fire if we're going to help pull somebody out of it. If people are trapped in hideous spiritual strongholds, you've got to be willing to go in and do nose-to-nose battle with principalities and powers if you've got to lead them out. Witnessing is not for the faint of heart. It takes a lot more courage to stand up for Jesus than it does to punch somebody's lights out. It takes real backbone to speak for Christ when the culture around you is going the other direction. My simple father used to put it this way, any dead fish can float with the current. It takes a strong live fish to swim against it. Are you dead or are you alive? Remember this, if you're tempted to succumb to the crowd, the crowd can lead you into hell. The crowd can never lead you back out. Never lead you back out. So to summarize this series, the ultimate answer to increased homosexuality is for the church to increase in being the church a people oriented to Jesus, a people who are so biblically informed that we will not be blown about by every wind of doctrine, by emotions, by political correctness, by societal pressure and idolatry, or by false teaching, a people who refuse to redefine the gospel for the sake of a friend, but instead invite their friend to let the gospel redefine their life so that they might discover abundance. The answer is a church that is oriented to Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are a huge part of the answer for the issue that confronts us all. And it's one thing to moan and groan about it. It's another to read alarming blogs and posts about it. But it's quite another to live in such a way that we are a part of the solution.
So in a world of increasing idolatry and the increasing homosexuality that is the fruit of it, Lord, help us to increase as the church, to be biblically informed, absolutely convinced of the authority of Scripture and of Christ, confident in the Holy Spirit, refusing to be detoured. Help us to be oriented to Jesus because we can't lead people where we've never been ourselves. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Would you stand please for the benediction? By the way, this past week, a couple who came to us to get married, who were a bit taken aback by our stance, came back a week later, signed a purity covenant, and testified that they felt a great liberty in their soul when they chose to do so. Who would have thought that obeying God actually feels good? <laughs> and if you'll do it, it will feel good for you. So go out and obey Him, and then you'll have an awesome week serving the Lord. God bless you.